This will be our last session, and I mentioned at the beginning that we will deal, after the introduction, we'll deal with three major issues where we as believers have a conflict with current science. And when we talk about current science, we're talking about theories of men. In other words, they're not established, not necessarily even true. In fact, one of them is a very false theory. So we've looked at two of them already. We looked at creation versus evolution. And I mentioned that the theory of evolution does not have virtually any scientific support for it, even though it's portrayed as scientific. I gave you virtually, in big categories, the major reasons people believe it or the evidence that they present, that the evolutionist presents, and tried to demonstrate that it's all superficial evidence. The real scientific evidence supports the idea of an intelligent designer, because there's so much design in the universe, and the designer must fit certain characteristics that could only fit the God of the Bible. So there's more scientific evidence that supports God as creator, just as the Bible indicates. So we spent two sessions looking at at that, and I came across a cartoon here. They believe life came about as a result of simple life form. This is kind of a play on that. (laughs) We mentioned there's no such thing as simple life form. All life, in fact, life at its most basic level, the cell, one single cell is more complex than anything man has ever put together. So if you can imagine uh, 747 coming about as a result of natural processes or a computer coming about as a result of natural processes, that's more likely than one single cell, much less life at a multicellular level. So the conclusion of an evolutionist that wrote a book, and that title of his book is Evolution, A Theory in Crisis, He's a microbiologist. Microbiology basically destroys the theory of evolution. He says, ultimately, the Darwinian theory of evolution is no more nor less than the great cosmogenic myth of the 20th century. So he acknowledges that it's it's not reality. It's, It's more mythical. It's more of a philosophical idea than really a scientific idea. So that was our first area that we looked at. We also looked at the Genesis Flood versus historical geology. Historical geology is one branch of geology. We don't have a problem with observational science that deals with geology, but we do have a problem with one branch, and it's called historical geology. That's the branch of geology that attempts to recreate Earth history. And remember, when we're dealing with history or past events, we're dealing with historical science, which... You need assumptions before you can do historical science, and we're questioning the assumptions that are made in their interpretation of the data. So I gave you a different interpretation of the same data. We're not adding new things here or looking at data they don't look at. We're looking at the same data, with the exception that we include also revelation because we have revelation concerning events of the past. The Bible teaches a Genesis flood that is universal, And I tried to demonstrate there's overwhelming evidence for, scientific evidence for a Genesis flood, a worldwide 
flood that destroyed all, not only all of humanity, but all of life, and except that that was on the ark. So we looked at that issue. Last time, this was not an issue, from what we talked about, we took another look at Genesis 1. And from Genesis 1, I tried to demonstrate that if you start with Genesis 1, then you can do good science. But if you go the other way around, if you try to impose current theories like evolutionary theories or long ages, which are assumptions, if you try to impose those on the biblical text, there's too many contradictions. You just you can't do it and do justice to the text. The one that suffers is the biblical text. We're going to reemphasize that again, dealing with the third issue tonight. So that's one of the things we looked at. And just kind of a follow-up on that, just by way of introduction here, I mentioned that when you're dealing with events, particularly ancient past events, current science assumes, do you remember that major principle that they assumed besides evolution? The present is the key to the past. That's a long word that is, what is the word? Uniformitarianism. That's an assumption. It's an unprovable assumption. And it cannot be proven because you can't go back in the past to verify it. It's an assumption that is made. And if you project back present processes like in geology, then you end up with billions of years. But if you take Revelation, the inspired text, and I believe that it's inerrant, then it tells us that there were some events that took place that actually radically affected the entire universe so the present is not the key to the past. Nature today is different. We don't live. Remember, we concluded the Genesis 1 study. The original creation was what? Very good. In other words, there's no death. There's no sin. There's no suffering. There's no degeneration. In fact, I would argue that there's no, at least the full extent of the second law of thermodynamics. There might be some aspects of it. But in general, there's no decay. There's no movement from order to disorder. So nature is different. We don't live in a very good creation. Something happened. If you study Genesis 3, this is just a follow-up. The point I'm making here is God has intervened, and we looked at a particular passage that describes that. God has intervened in time, and he has radically changed the natural realm. The biblical text tells us that. Scientifically, we can't go back and check that out because you don't have a time machine. But if you believe in Revelation, and if you believe in what Genesis is telling us, particularly Genesis 3, there's little indications in the text that indicate that the world we live in now is radically different than the world before the fall of man, first of all. And I just summarized the physical effects of man's sin, there were effects on the natural realm. Yes, there were effects on mankind spiritually, but even physically there were effects. And the text tells us this. For example, are serpents today the same as they were before the fall? The text tells us no. What does it say? Genesis 3, part of the judgment on Satan also had an effect on the agent that Satan used, the serpent. Crawls on its belly. So biologically, there was something different after than before. 
And physiologically, it seems it was different. So there's some radical changes. And the text says the, the serpent was cursed more than what? The other animals or the other beasts. That implies that all of zoology was affected. So if you want to look at it scientifically, all of zoology is different after the fall than it was before the fall. The serpent was cursed. What about the woman? Is she the same before the fall as after the fall? No. What happened to the woman? Pain in childbirth. The implication is if she could have had children before sin entered with no pain, something happened to the woman. The text doesn't say specifically things change in man, but we would say by analogy that there were some biological changes that took place as well. And I would say that all of anthropology was affected by the fall of man. You got a question or comment? Why not? Text doesn't tell us. There's a lot of things in the biblical text that it doesn't tell us, particularly in the early chapters of Genesis. But I believe what God has revealed to us is what he wants us to understand and know. And from that, we have enough to be able to come to other conclusions, like some of the ones that we're coming to even here. Does that make sense? And by the way, God has not, I mentioned before, I believe in the incomprehensibility of God. Remember that? And what that is, is that we cannot conceive of the God of the Bible apart from God revealing himself. God is incomprehensible, but that does not mean that he is not knowable. He is knowable, but only by what he has revealed. And there's some indications in some passages that indicate that God was pleased only to reveal something of himself. So we don't have an infinite knowledge or a total knowledge of who God is. In fact, we may never know all of the aspects of who God is. So we just have what he is pleased to reveal. And that's true of other things as well. Make sense? If they had children before the fall, they would not necessarily, I would assume they would not have a sin nature. That's correct. How do you have a problem about the rest of the creation? You know, some need a savior. Good point. Well, that's true too. <laughs> they, pro- they probably would have followed their parents. Okay. Yeah, but they wouldn't have that sin nature. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Main thing I'm trying to stress right now is there were physical effects on all of the whole universe. There's indications of the whole universe here as a result of the sin of man. Man was to have dominion, but part of the punishment for sin is God caused the natural realm to rebel against man. So it was affected as well. Well, man had to sweat and toil. Well, we'll get to that. Yep, we're getting to that. Geophysics is also affected as well. The curse is also on the natural realm. The ground is specified, but I think it went beyond that. Ground curse. So all of geophysics was affected. And by implication, what I'm getting at here is all of the creation was affected by the fall of man. And we can spend time talking about botany. There were no thorns and thistles before the fall. This is part of the curse. No hmm? No. Nope. Well, there was cactus, the cactus kind, but it did not have... Uh, now, I think God built into the genetic makeup all of the capabilities to produce those things. That would be our scientific explanation. But if you know the DNA code... The DNA code has a lot of what we might describe by analogy switches that are turned on and off, and some of them 
were latent before the fall of man, already built in because the Creator knew that man would sin. And then after the fall, some of those switches were turned on in terms of producing thorns and thistles. Does that make sense? Okay. Physics is affected. Now you have the full effects of the second law of thermodynamics, sweat, toil, and then even death, physical death. You might say, well, Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. Well, their cells began to die individually. And after 900 years, Adam and Eve ceased to breathe, but that's not the only form of death. I don't want to spend too much more time on that. There's another event that indicates similar, and I'll go over this more rapidly, similar to the fall of man. I think more effects were introduced as a result of the Genesis flood, physical effects. And by the way, remember we looked at the Romans 8, 19-22. That passage very specifically ties the work of God to these effects when it talks about the imposition of the curse upon basically the universe. He subjected in hope that all will be released. We also believe in resurrection, and we believe in a restoration of the natural realm. So laws of physics are not constants. They're only constants within the time frame that God sets up. We're living... After the Genesis flood, I'm going to make that point in a moment here. The physical effects of the Genesis flood, all of geophysics is affected. Remember we talked about the Genesis flood. The entire geological column is now radically different than what the surface of the earth looked like before the flood. Tectonics, now we have continents as opposed to probably not before the flood. Climatology is affected. That's hinted at in 822 when it talks about seasons now. There seemed to have been a more constant atmosphere before. Now, that's a, that's not as clear. Uh, we can explain an ice age as a result of the Genesis flood. I gave you some of that. Oceanography. That's specified to have new boundaries. So all of that is affected. And there'd be radical changes as a result of the Genesis flood on the oceans as well, as a result of the er erosion and the mixing of chemicals and all kinds of things. So orogeny, we have different mountains now. And I gave you some insight into that idea. Even physics is affected. Probably other constants were tweaked, at least, if not radically changed. And one that's very clear, anthropology is different. Do people live 900 years now? That implies that the conditions, and that would affect a lot of either constants or other areas environmental that may have effects on the longevity of man, or maybe even genetics. Things are different now. We don't live that long. In fact, we don't even live close to that. Well, how do you understand the argument? You have people living 900 years. No. Well, that was before the flood. Before the flood. But... After the fall. So you're saying the flood introduces new effects. Yeah, these are all new effects, new changes. Pat? Am I wrong that we, I have never been exposed to the teaching of the implication of the fall of man in this Like this. Way. Yeah. You know, after the flood, you get that. But it, it seems to me that the fall of man was as radical as the flood. Yes. I've never heard that. The fall of man was more radical. Well, yes. But, I mean, it's never been presented that way. I'm very sorry about that. Well, I am too. <laughs> sorry about that. 
In fact, in a chart, here's world history from eternity to eternity. I have a lot of these charts. Here's one of them. Six days of creation and one day of rest. Very good creation. Radically different. After the fall, we have a curse that's introduced. The fall, we have a curse. We're living under a cursed world. That continues. This is the line that is Genesis flood here. And we are living under the Noahic covenant. In fact, the Noahic covenant is a physical covenant. God makes it with Noah and his descendants, but also with the earth. It's also with the creation. All right. God has made some promises and we're living under that covenant. And now we can do science because we are living in a stable environment where the laws are constant. Are they always going to be that way? Do you believe in a millennial kingdom? And if you believe in resurrection, what are the physical effects on on a resurrection body? Are the laws of gravity affect resurrection body? Christ seemed to float up into the clouds with no problem. He seemed to go through walls. We're going to have a resurrection body. The natural realm is going to be changed. A lion is going to lay down with a lamb. If you do that today, you'll end up with your lion, but... A good lunch for the line. So we're living under the Noahic covenant, and there's a line there. That's the second coming where nature is going to be, to some extent, restored during the millennial kingdom. So nature is not always the same. It's only within the parameters that God sets it up. The curse is going to go all the way to the second coming. Now, it's going to continue in a partial sense during the millennial kingdom, and I'll show you that in a minute. Christ being resurrected is the first fruits. So we have a hint of what some changes are going to be like in the resurrection of Christ. And then I've got a dotted line because there's still death during the millennial kingdom. But there's a refreshing that comes out of Acts chapter 3, a period of restoration that's described in Isaiah and other passages, uh, Revelation chapter 20 and other places in the Old Testament. And you might even say that miracles are just examples of God intervening to change the natural realm. And they've occurred in different periods of time. That's why I showed the little asterisks there. So radical changes. All right, spent too much time on that. Let's talk about the... You didn't have the years past the... Oh, you want a date for the second coming, huh? (laughs) I don't have that much insight. If he gave us the date... That's right. If I had a date, I'd give it to you. Just kidding. So let's look at the third major area that we have a conflict with current science. All you hear about is the Earth is what? How many billions? Old. Very old. Gazillion? Okay, the universe. About 4.5 billion is the current scientific idea. You never hear that, and if you looked at that chart I showed you, somewhere in the range of 4,000 years BC, so, so far 6,000 years, and I think my calculation is 4,132 or something. But anyway, who cares? So we're going to talk about a relatively young Earth that the Bible seems to indicate, there's nowhere in the Bible that indicates billions of years. Something is wrong in somebody's calculation. And I think I've already given you some hints as to where the problem is. If you take present processes, you can come up with billions of years. 
like radiometric dating and that sort of thing. But if there were radical changes at the flood, and by the way, there was a scientific project that studied radiometric dating and that whole area by ICR, and they've written entire books on it, uh, describing it. They're on the bibliography, by the way. And they came to the conclusion that radiometric dating changed as a result of the Genesis flood. In other words, the dates that you come up with are much shorter or should be much shorter because the half-lives would have been different. No, that those are believers, creation scientists. Okay, so let's take a look at this issue. Is the universe relatively young in the range of thousands or is it billions of years? So this is kind of the, the, the two different viewpoints. Naturalism, 5 billion, 4.5 billion, somewhere in that range for the Earth. And I used to see the number of 20 billion for the universe, but for some reason they brought it uh, down a little bit. Uh, what I've heard recently is like 14, 16 billion. I don't know what changed in their calculations. But that's naturalism. That's the only thing that you'll hear. In other words, anything that is dated in the ancient past usually is millions of years or billions of years, depending on what they're talking about. But the Bible seemed to indicate about 6,000, somewhere in that range. That's a radically different time frame. And that's based on Genesis 1 and 2 and the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. And we'll talk about the compromise views tonight as well. Okay? So this is basically what I'm going to share tonight. This is the evidence for a relatively young earth. And number one, I want to give you the compromise views. In other words, the views that the church has adopted, because remember the church in general has accepted evolution. And because it's accepted evolution, it also has accepted the idea that if there was a flood at all, it had to have been a local flood only in Mesopotamia. So it has rejected the reinterpretation of the geological column that I gave you when we talked about the flood. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but I've got to be brief on it. Secondly, we're going to look at the evidence from Scripture. In other words, how can you come up with billions of years from Scripture? You can't. And that's going to be the main point that I make. And what does Scripture seem to indicate? And how do you interpret, for example, the days in Genesis? And these compromised views all play around with those days in Genesis. In other words, they don't view them as normal solar 24-hour days. We're going to look at the problem of accommodation. This is what the church has done. Same thing. That's what we talked about. When we're talking about creation versus evolution. The church has adopted what is called, do you remember the name that we described it? Creation, uh, evolution. In fact, I was talking to a woman this week, or this last week, and she described it perfectly. She says, well, I, I believe the Bible and I believe God was a creator, but I don't want to abandon science. And science says evolution is true. Is it possible that God used evolution to create all things? And she says, that makes perfect sense to me. That's the majority of the church. That's the view of the majority of the church. And that's called what? Hermeneutics. Not hermeneutics, no. <laughs> Starts with a T. H. Give Theistic evolution. Okay, theistic. Yeah, theistic evolution. That's the majority view of Christians. In terms of the flood, the majority view is a local flood. 
So they're accommodating. In other words, they're accepting evolution. They're, and in this area, they're accepting the billion of year chronology. So how do you do that? And what happens when you accommodate? So I want to touch on that as well. And then we'll conclude. And we can spend hours in this area, but I'm just going to give you a feel for the scientific evidence. Scientific evidence. And up front, Russ Humphreys, I've mentioned him, world-class scientist, retired from Sandia Labs, a physicist, Sandia Labs, retired, a creationist. He says 90% of the scientific evidence supports a relatively young Earth. It's only 10% of the scientific evidence supports long ages. And if we have time, I'll touch on that 10%. I'll mention it briefly. We can come back to it depending on time. So those are the four things we want to do this evening. And we can spend an hour on each one of them. And by the way, I've got a two-part session on this whole thing, except for this little introduction that I gave you on Genesis 3 and, and Flood. It's on my website and there's 99 slides as opposed to about 50, 60 slides that we're going to share tonight. So if you want it, it's on the website. And by the way, if you want another more detailed explanation of these changes in the natural realm and as a result affecting science, I've got a talk also, I've mentioned it, the Biblical Foundation for Science that you might be interested. That's also on the website. The Biblical Foundation for Science... There's a video that I did at a Chafer conference. I think it's 2014. So on the website, under Creation Science, look under Chafer conference. And it's there. It's also in audio only for Creation Science Fellowship, one of the talks there. Biblical Foundation for Science. The other one that I did, that's the two-part one on the age of the earth, I did for a seminar at Hoffmantown Church. So look under Hoffmantown, and it'll have three talks there. There's two parts on the age of the earth. And that would be 2016. Okay, January 2016. I couldn't remember exactly. But just look at Hoffmantown, okay? So let's look at these views that are compromised views. Probably the most popular is... And the oldest is what's called the day-age theory. And as you can probably figure out, each day in Genesis represents an age of geological time. So geological ages are described in the book of Genesis or Genesis chapter 1. And you can add however many millions and billions of years that you want to, to each of those ages. Well... It's a compromise view. It's trying to fit current science and make Genesis fit into current science. So you're going to have all kinds of problems. I don't have time to get into all the details of it. But very briefly, this is the summary of it. Each day of creation is a geological time frame or a geological age. The problem is it misuses the word day. We're going to look at that. It also does not solve the geological issues. In fact, no geologist sees six geological ages. So it, it doesn't solve the problems of geology. And it misinterprets 2 Peter 3.8. It uses it as support. A day 
with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is, you know, that, that passage. It misuses that, takes it totally out of context. And there's other problems as well. I'm just, I got to give you these very quickly. Another real popular viewpoint is called, and you probably heard of this. Can you tell me what it is besides the day age theory? Gap theory. Gap theory. Very good. The next one is the gap theory. In other words, there's a gap between Genesis 1, 1 and verse 2. And you can insert, it's an attempt to insert all of these geological ages somewhere in the Bible. Just stick them all right there. And you can have as many billions of years as you want between verse 1 and verse 2. And then they reinterpret verse 2 in a negative sense and seem to indicate that uh, something seemed to be changed here because you have darkness, you have emptiness, you know, the earth was without form and void. Isn't there a theory that there was some other race of humanity? Yeah, the Nephilim. That's I think that's part of another theory. Yeah. They would also put the fall of Satan in that time frame and a judgment on Satan as a result. The earth became without form and void. All right. Schofield Bible popularized it because it had a note and used this as an explanation. How do you solve the problem of long ages? Again, it's imposing science on the biblical text. So long time gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. It accepts evolution. That's a problem. It ignores geological issues as well. And it's not supported by scripture. Third view, progressive. this is the most popular one today. Progressive creationism. Most popular compromise view today. And the view is basically God occasionally interjects acts of creation. In other words, the creation doesn't take place over long geological ages. You have long geological ages, and then God, after long periods of time, does creative acts, and then you have maybe another period of long, non-creative days, and then more creative acts. And the six days of Genesis depict those creative acts over billions of years, however many you want to put in between that. So it's kind of a modification of that day-age theory or a refinement of it, you might say. So this is probably the most popular view today within the church, within the church or amongst Christians. And the one that's popularized it is an astrophysicist by the name of Hugh Ross. And he's real popular, speaks... No, he's Canadian, I believe. English spiritual teaches the day... Yeah, that might be the day-age theory. Again, accepts evolution makes God a bumbling God. You know, he has to intervene in history to kind of set things straight and to move progress. It's not supported by Scripture as well. You have to force the theory into the text. In fact, I'm going to use one of the examples from Hugh Ross later on. We have time. There's days of revelation. In other words, these are not events depicted in Genesis 1. What we have there is God revealed to Moses in six days what he created. So it's not taking the passage literally. It's not taking it historical. It's just that Moses got these revelations or these visions, and this is what he saw in six days. And then God rested from giving visions on the seventh day. And there's other views as well. Okay, those are the compromise views. Got that? Have you heard any of these? You've heard the gap theory. Probably heard the day-age theory, and some of you have heard progressive creationism. Those are the three most popular ones. 
The day-age theory has kind of gone out of popularity. The gap theory has been somewhat replaced by progressive creationism today, such that progressivism is the most popular view. What's the biblical evidence or scripture evidence? And again, I'm just going to give you a sampling of this so that we can get to the scientific evidence and deal with the accommodating views as well. So, first of all, we want to look at the creation account itself. That's Genesis 1. And primarily, we're going to focus on the meaning of the word day. And Pat likes the Hebrew word, so we'll put yom up there. Y-O-M is the transliteration. And the first thing that the progressive creationists will point out, so we'll go through the same process here. And this is true of every word. In fact, it's true of English words. I don't know if I used, did I use the illustration here? Uh, if you want to do a word study, what you do is you study the range of meaning of words. Words only have meaning within their context, right? And the example that I use in the hermeneutics course is the word trunk. What's the meaning of the word trunk? You don't know unless you have a context. If we're talking about the back of an automobile, unless it's a Volkswagen, then a trunk you visualize in your mind, oh, it opens up and you can put suitcases in there and, all, you know, that sort of thing. But you have to have a context. In other words, the trunk of a car. If you're talking about a very large animal that predominantly lives in Africa, you're, you're not thinking of a box at the back of that animal. You're thinking of something in the front of the animal, right? Different trunk. Same word, same spelling, same sounds, different meaning, different context. If your young kid is climbing up the trunk, you don't envision him jumping on top of the car, do you? Or climbing up that big animal in Africa. You're thinking of him climbing up what? A trunk of a tree. But the context tells you the meaning of that word. So words have meaning only in their context. And we call that a range of meaning. Now I'm giving you an example of a word that has a wide range of meaning. Most words have a more narrow range of meaning. So you have to look at context to determine meaning. If you're talking about a trunk that is in the attic of your house, you don't have a huge animal up there, right? You didn't drive your car up there. You didn't plant a tree up there, right? What are you thinking of? A chest. A luggage-type trunk. So the word is used different ways, different contexts. So also, yom has a range of meaning. And if you do a word study, this is what you want to do. See the range of meaning in order to determine how is the word used in this particular context. And that's what we want to do with Yom and see how did Moses intend to use this word in Genesis 1. The range of meaning, it can have the meaning. It can have a sense of general, a, a general sense. In other words, an unspecified period of time. We use the word day like that in our culture as well. You might say, in the day of Abraham, what are you saying? You're not talking about a 24-hour period of time. You're talking about a period of time when Abraham lived. 
And Abraham lived 175 years, so you're talking about an extended period of time. The word is used in that way in the Bible, and we use that word in the same way. So the progressive creationist will say, well, this must be the way the word is used in Genesis 1. And we want to look at the details of the text. And it could be used in the sense of an age, in other words, a more specific, and maybe the the example of the the day of Abraham might be more, in other words, in the age or time frame of Abraham, more specific. It can be in reference to six days, in other words, all six of them. It's used that way in chapter 2, referring back to the, the six days, it uses yom. It can also be used in the daylight time time frame, in other words, the daylight, that's used in Genesis 1 as well. But the context tells you that. Do you remember we saw when God created, what is it, verse 5? God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light yom. That's just the light part. But the context makes it clear. And the darkness he called night. So he's dividing it up. The light portion he calls day. He uses yom. But the context indicates that. But... In some context, it's used as a solar day, approximately 24 hours. So the issue is, and the question, how is Moses using it in Genesis 1? Okay, so that's what we want to look at. Well, first of all, your starting point in trying to decide biblical words, and this is one of them, yom, you see how it's primarily used, and if you study all of the usages, all 3,000 of them, I think. I can't remember exactly. I think it's 3,000 usages in the Old Testament. And you look every one of them up, 95% of them refer to a 24 or what we would describe as a solar day. That's your starting point. You have to have compelling evidence in the biblical text to go away when you have percentages like this. In other words, if you have a 95% usage, more than likely that's your starting point. And if you can find evidence in the text, otherwise, like the one I just gave you, in terms of the daylight portion, then you see that the author is using it differently. So that's your starting point, automatically. Secondly, obviously, context determines meaning, always. Context always determines meaning. How is the author using it? Not how do I want him to use it, not what does science force me to come to the conclusion concerning how it's used. And that's the typical way that you have to read into the text billions of years or in some way long periods of time. And you have to get away from the specific. Well, in that context, and I remember we looked at verse 5, and I'm going to show it to you again. The context seems to specify a 24-hour period of time. The first use, for example... God called the light day, that's yom, in other words, the light portion, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Evening and morning, what is that telling you? Moses is saying, more specifically, I'm talking about a normal type of day, a solar day that has an evening and a morning. So you have to spiritualize those words or those phrases. He's specifying. In fact, I think he's giving us a definition right off the bat. So when he's talking about day one or one day, he's talking about a solar day. When he talks about a second day, he's talking about a solar day. I think the first use defines a concept. This is common in scripture. It's common in the book of Genesis. 
when Moses gives us a new concept, he'll give us a little explanation on it or in some sense a definition of it. And I think verse 5 is a definition. So the context and the first use, when you have qualifiers like evening and morning or one day when you have qualifiers, 100% of the usages in the Old Testament refer to a solar day. 100% of them, when you have qualifiers. This would be an exception if it's not a solar day. And we mentioned when we were, I can't remember when, but we talked about there were other terms that Moses could have used had he intended something other than a solar day. And those words, remember... Olam, long duration, and here's the verses. Christy, you were asking what passage, and I wasn't sure. It's verse 22. Remember that passage? In fact, in that context, it talks about a long period of time. It almost implies eternal time. Moses knew the word Olam. He could have used that had he intended long ages or long periods of time. He uses it in the next chapter, 322. He uses it in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. He uses it in chapter 9, verse 12. So Moses was familiar with long ages or long periods of time. He wasn't familiar with billions of years, but he was familiar with perhaps hundreds of years. And there's another Hebrew word, a red, also has the idea of something long. Now, if the context is distance, then it's talking about a long distance. If the context is time, then it's talking about a long period of time. Moses uses it in Genesis 26, 8. And he also uses it in Deuteronomy 5, verse 33. So Moses was familiar with terms he could have used had he intended long periods of time, but he chose the word yom. So the creation account supports the idea of relatively short period of time, and the context almost demands that Yom is defined as a solar day. And the rest of the Old Testament somewhat confirms that. So let's look at Old Testament support. If you look at the biblical chronology, and I've got a chart here that charts all of Genesis, basically, which is the time frame in question. And if you take the numbers literally, in other words, you're not departing from a proper hermeneutic. You're not spiritualizing. You're not injecting anything into the text. So you're not doing eisegesis. If you just take what is given to you in Genesis, you have numbers Those numbers seem to indicate real time frames, real years. Now, they are long, but it appears that people, there's a lot of evidence in the text that indicates that people lived longer before the Genesis flood than afterwards. So, yes, they're long, but they are very precise. Now, these are the numbers that are in what's called the Masoretic text. The Septuagint is a little bit different. But still, even the Septuagint, or the Greek translation, has a longer period of time, but it's not billions of years. So you have to insert lots of gaps in the genealogies. And if you do that, then you have a lot of problems with the New Testament, which I'll talk about next. Because Luke includes a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam. And there, there's only one name that's injected in there. There's not a lot of gaps. 
So you have to question the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So, and it's unbelievable how many gaps you'd have to inject. Now, man, evolution says is, I don't, I don't remember how many millions of years, but too long a time frame to inject gaps. And then the Gospel of Matthew has another genealogy that uh, is probably the genealogy of Joseph. Luke is probably the genealogy of Mary. Luke goes back to Adam. Matthew goes back to Abraham. Okay, But Luke's would be the problem because we're talking about those before the flood. What are, what are those dates, 2016 and 17? I use this slide for other things. 2060 is when Abraham entered the land, Genesis chapter 12. 1774, that's not close to the signing of the Constitution. That's B.C. <laughs> that's, yeah, several, a few years before. That's the, the death of Joseph. So that's the end of Genesis. And the flood, 2487. These are my calculations. The creation, oh, there it is, uh, 4143, not 32. Now, just to illustrate, before the flood, something changed during the flood, and then we have a exponential decay curve in terms of the ages. They kind of fit that. The data fits that, which indicates something changed as a result of the Genesis flood environmentally and perhaps even uh, anthropologically that now ages kind of are well below the 900 or so ages. Who's that little short guy? Oh, that's the guy that was uh, raptured? Enoch. That's Enoch, the little short guy? <laughs> okay. Let's see. He's still about. living today. Yeah, he's still alive today, exactly. Well, this is the biblical front time frame, basically, some of the major events. And there's nothing in the Old Testament that kind of injects ages in the early chapters or anywhere. And uh, these are mainly my calculations based on Harold Hunger, who's a biblical scholar that has done a lot of work in chronology. So the crucifixion, 33 AD, David, beginning of his kingship, 1011, and same number for the flood. So the biblical chronology, you have to read in lots of time that's not there. And you would ask the question, if the earth is that old, why does the Bible not tell us? We might give the same answer I gave you earlier. We have what we need to know, but that doesn't seem to be adequate because we have other data that gives us other information like these chronologies, plus the evidence in Genesis 1. Here's another interesting line of evidence, the fourth commandment. And again, this is Moses, and you might even say, actually, this is God. God is interpreting for Moses why he created in six days. I've been stressing, had God wanted to create a full-blown universe instantaneously, he could have said, let there be a full-blown universe with man as its head, and it was so. And all you need is just an nanosecond one, <laughs> or instantaneous. Remember, there's immediacy of fulfillment. He created in six days, and I think we understand that when we get to the Ten Commandments, that God inscribed in stone is God mistaken, because this is what God told Moses 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Six days, Yom. Not six ages, not Olam. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in it. In other words, we observe a Sabbath. We work six days and we observe a Sabbath after the pattern that God has set in the creative days. And it's reiterated here, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. That's the basis for Israel's Sabbath rest. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's the reason he created in six days. He didn't rest because he was tired. It was very labor-intensive six days, right? God doesn't get tired. He's immutable, doesn't change. But he did it to set a pattern for the work week. So we have kind of reinforcement here from God himself inscribing the Ten Commandments in stone. God was not mistaken in revealing to Moses that he created in six days. So that's the Old Testament and uh, we can spend a lot of time on the New Testament as well. The New Testament indicates, for example, the New Testament supports the idea of a recent creation because death began with the fall of man. It's Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But it begins with the sin of Adam. Evolution, in fact, progressive creationism that accepts a lot of evolution, has to have, if you accept evolution, you have a lot of death and suffering before the fall of man or before mankind, because evolution is based on death. Survival of what? The fittest. The fittest. You have death. The rest die. Romans 5.12, the New Testament says death starts with Adam and Eve in a short time frame. Now, it's not commenting on, a, on the time frame here, but it implies the biblical time frame. So just the concept of death in Romans 5.12, and there's other verses as well, 1 Corinthians 15.21 as well. The New Testament overall, there's not a New Testament author. In fact, some of the authors refer to these events as historical events, referring to Adam, referring to Eve, referring to Enoch, referring to others in that genealogy as historical people not mythological, and they assume a relatively young earth. And Jesus himself, for example, in Mark 10, when he's talking about, he's making a comment on marriage, and he's saying it was not so from the beginning. He's not saying the beginning at the Big Bang, billions of years, at the beginning of the creation. So he's putting mankind created at the beginning. In other words, in that first creative week. And he establishes the principles of marriage in that week in Genesis chapter 2, the creation of man and woman. He establishes marriage in the beginning. So Jesus saw a relatively young earth. And there's other passages as well and other evidence from the New Testament. So we're shattering old earth assumptions. And this cartoon in a humorous way does that. Actually, the way the world's falling apart, it probably was made in only six days. So the conclusion is the biblical chronology cannot be harmonized with billions of years. That's the evolutionary time frame. And that's what is imposed on the biblical text. I'm just curious, so 
progressive creationism. How, where are they in the function? Oh, this guy they're a little, they're a little fuzzy. They do believe in what they call hominids, in other words, pre-Adamic people. Yeah. We have these balls, but then here. Yeah, and they would interpret when God breathes into Adam, he breathes in the soul, and now this is just animals. Yeah, that's how progressive creation. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of an evolutionary missing link type person. Yeah, good question. That's progressive creationism. That's their viewpoint. That's one of the problems that they have to solve that problem, and that's the best they can do. Pat? Why is it that the Chinese reckon the time frame of six that That's their, their counting from that. Uh, I'm not aware of that, but that's probably because they have a memory of a relatively young Earth. Yeah, uh, but, but I, I don't know. I don't I can't comment on that. Counting. Okay, Joe? What about the uh, Genesis 6? You know, the concept of uh, man and yeah, that's a that's a thorny problem. There's at least three different views on that. Is that really? Well, they would have they would have died as as a result of the Genesis flood because only cause this is Genesis six, so all of them would have died. Now there are giants afterwards, but those are probably genetic defects, and I'm not sure they are necessarily Nephilim, even though I think in some contexts there that same word is used. Okay, okay, so those are the lines of argument that we would use from Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates long ages. You have to read that into the biblical text and force the text into that framework. Problems of accommodation. Let's go over this quickly. First of all, hermeneutics. There's the word. Mr. Nudics. That's the science of interpretation. And if you take the course, we do interpretation all the time. Uh, This is the main function of the Supreme Court is to interpret law and see whether it conforms to the original intent of the writers of the Constitution. At least that's the conservative approach rather than a living and breathing document. But it's an interpretive process. Literature is interpreted. In other words, what did the original author intend, or how do you interpret literature? So it's a broad field, but when we're speaking biblically, it specifies the particular principles that you use in interpreting Scripture, and you have to use a non-literal approach. In other words, you have to depart from normal hermeneutics to hold to any of the accommodating views. If you maintain a consistent, literal, or grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic, you are forced into the conclusions we came to in interpreting Yom, interpreting Genesis 1, interpreting the biblical time frame. So any accommodating views violates the principles of hermeneutics, the biblical principles that are well-established and well-accepted principles of hermeneutics. And particularly what they generally do, and this is what the progressive creationists do, they say that Genesis 1 is poetry. It's not historical narrative. It's poetry. Now, there's a lot of problems with that by itself. It doesn't fit Hebrew poetry. They will argue that it's got symmetry, six days, three days seem to be balanced with the last three, and they see repetition, which... 
are characteristics of poetry in general, but not necessarily Hebrew poetry. I'll talk about that some more in a moment. So the major characteristics of Hebrew poetry, what is the main and overwhelming characteristic of Hebrew poetry? Does anyone know? Is it rhyme? No. No. Is it rhythm? No. What is it? Parallelism. Not necessarily three, but sometimes it can be, but parallelism. In other words, you have lines that are parallel, which is good because if you try to, in other words, if the Hebrew text rhymed, it'd be hard to translate into another language because you, how would you come up with a word that also rhymed in the language that you're translating? But you can easily translate a whole idea or a whole line of words. And in Hebrew poetry, parallelism is paramount. And there's three major kinds. I won't get into all the detail, but the most common is synonymous. In other words, you have one line, and then you have another line that is parallel to it. And both of them, if it's synonymous, both of them are saying something very similar using different words. That's synonymous parallelism. That's Hebrew poetry. That does not occur in Genesis 1. And that's a major characteristic, okay? You have antithetical parallelism. You have two lines. One line is what to the other one? Contrast. Contrast, or sometimes opposite. You have, in Proverbs, you have the fool something or other, but the wise man something or other. One line is in contrast to the other, all right? And there's others as well. Uses metaphorical language, in other words, more flexibility with words. It is true to life. Hebrew poetry is true to life. Some poetry is not. And I'll talk some more about birds in a moment. Genesis 1. In fact, everything in the book of Genesis is historical narrative. Historical narrative is the presentation of history, historical events, or events in story form, but they're historical. And when we speak of narrative in the Bible, it's historical narrative, particularly Genesis. This is a very characteristic way of presenting narrative. You present the first verb in the perfect tense. Baraz in the perfect tense. God created. That is followed by sequences of phrases with verbs in the imperfect. It's followed by what's called in Hebrew, vav consecutive. That's like an and. And you say, and God said, what? Then he does something, and God does this, and God does that. That's vav consecutive. In other words, event, 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 event. So it's followed by a vav consecutive and verbs in the imperfect. And you have that in Genesis 1. So it's historical narrative. Genesis 1 through 11 is the same in terms of literature. It's the same type of literature as 12 through 50. And most people accept 12 through 50 as historical narrative. No difference. And it was a computer analysis as part of that ICR project that dealt with radiometric dating. And the computer analysis compared other pieces of narrative and other pieces of poetry And the analysis came out to 0.9999. In other words, the probability close to one, in other words, the closer to one is, in other words, it's certain. If it's closer to zero, then it's impossible. But it's closer to one, 0.999, four nine, four digits, 
that it's historical narrative. So that by itself almost throws progressive creationism out the window. Also, exegesis, problem with exegesis. In other words, when you apply the basic principles to the biblical text, that's exegesis, you have to really jump through hoops to maintain all of these accommodating views. And one of the books that I looked at, a commentary on Genesis 1, I think I gave this to you before, but let me re-emphasize it. What you have to do is you have to emphasize the supporting details, otherwise, obviously, you don't have a case. So you make a case that the text is speaking of long ages, and the only way you can do that is emphasize some details of the text, and that's what they do. But then you superimpose current theories upon the text, scientific theories, that are not there. You have to impose them. Thirdly, you reinterpret the text to fit those theories. This is pretty common. And I observed this very clearly in one text, but I've noticed that these occur in other commentaries as well. And then fourthly, you, they ignore the non-supporting details. In other words, there's a lot of things in the text that go against the theory, go against the reinterpretation, and they ignore it. They don't comment on it. An example, Hugh Ross, creation of the sun and the moon on day four, we talked about that last time, doesn't fit the theory, doesn't fit evolution, and therefore does not fit progressive creationism. So notice what he does on creation day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars become distinctly visible. He puts them on day one, but now on day four you can see them. So they're mentioned on day four. So they're distinctly visible from Earth's surface for the first time. That's why they're on day four. Not because they were created on day four, but because you can see them. So 116, then he has to reinterpret 16 because it goes against it, is, is a parenthetical note. 17 echoes the wording of day one, so that's his support for putting it in day one. But there's a lot of problems here. Uh, we have the same divine fiat as we have in our other, the other days. In other words, God creates just like the other days. We don't have an appearing. In fact, I'm going to get to that in a moment. We have the immediacy of fulfillment, just like we have. That's in verse 15. We have creation terms. He made, asa, another creative word. Remember, you have bara. In the beginning, God uses, creates bara. Here you have the uh, uh, synonym, asa, a creative term in verse 16. In fact, in verse 16, there's asa. And in verse 9, remember the dry land, what? Ra'ah, appeared. Moses doesn't use that in 15, 16, and 17. If he wanted the, the, the sun and the moon to appear, he could have used ra'ah because he uses it in verse 9. He doesn't do that. He uses a creative word. So he's forcing the text, the exegetical detail, don't support the idea. And then in 17, we have an additional note, God placing the sun and the moon in the, the heavens and, and, by the way, the stars. Okay. So, the exegetical details are very, very important. <laughs> right? <laughs> the details are important. Exegetical details are important. The cartoon just illustrates it. This is what happens when you try to force scripture into scientific theory. What suffers? 
Scripture suffers every time you undermine Scripture. So those are the problems with accommodation. So in the last few minutes here, we'll look at the scientific evidence. Okay? And I'm just going to give you a sampling of it. Russ Humphreys, I mentioned earlier, he says that only 10% of the scientific evidence supports the idea of a relatively old Earth in the billions of year time frame. Only 10%. That is all that you will hear about. That is all that is presented in the public schools. That is all that is presented on the UNM campus is billions of years. But only 10% of the scientific evidence supports it. You can do the math. What is the math? How many percentages support a relatively young Earth? 90%. Very good. You get an A in your math today. All right? <laughs> Very quickly, the 10%, and let me, I'll have to do this real quickly, the evidence that they present and they emphasize, and you've heard all of this, number one, they use geological evidence, they use the geological column. Remember I showed you the geological column with billions of years on it for Earth history. But what debunks all that? The geological <laughs> column, but <laughs> what more specifically? <laughs> the Genesis flood. If the Genesis flood occurred and created the geological column all the way down to the Precambrian layer, it eliminates those billions of years. Okay, got that? So that answer, the Genesis flood, answers that argument. Now you won't hear that. Secondly, they talk about, from physics, radiometric dating. That's probably the most common, commonly used. That ICR project, I don't have time to go over it, but in summary, they tried to deal with some of these issues in physics, and particularly radiometric dating. And what you need to know, and I could go into some detail on this, take about 45 to an hour to do it, but I'd have to explain the whole theory of radiometric dating, but the main thing that you need to know is radiometric dating is based on three, actually four, but three major assumptions. And it's like a three-legged table. If you knock one of the legs out, what happens to the three-legged table? Collapses. Well, ICR in that research project showed that probably all three of those assumptions are, are wrong. Yep, all three of them. One of them is that radiometric dating, the half-lives that they use are constant. And they came to the conclusion that they're probably not constant and that they were radically affected by the Genesis flood. That was one of the conclu scientific conclusions that they came to. But the other two assumptions they thought were invalid as well. So all three legs, of all three assumptions, major assumptions, collapses radiometric dating. And we can talk a lot about that. Probably the thorniest problem and the biggest problem for creationists is the issue of astrophysics and starlight. And I would recommend the book that Russ Humphreys wrote. It's called Starlight and Time. It's on the bibliography. He answers this question or this issue, and he supports the idea that the Earth is relatively young. So he gives an answer to the starlight problem. And the problem with starlight we seem to be able to observe stars that are billions of light years away. So how do you account for those billions of light years? And creationists in the past have used the argument that God created the light in transit, 
but that would make God kind of deceiving us into thinking that maybe we're seeing things that are that many light years away. But that has been the common explanation that young Earth scientists have used. Humphreys uses the theory of relativity to answer this issue. And he get some of it is a little technical, but the, the book is written in a very readable form. And he uses appendix to explain some of the, the physics detail. And I could recommend it. It's written for a general audience. So we have an answer for that issue, astrophysics and starlight. Okay, let's take a quick look at the 90% of young Earth evidence. And there is an article I'll refer you to from CMI, that's Creation Ministries International. It's an Australian group. In fact, the Sarfati is one of the main ones from that organization. But it has put together in one article, at least has listed them with a few comments, 101 evidences for a relatively young Earth. And it's a young Earth creation website, along with ICR and Answers in Genesis. All three of them, I've got them on that bibliography. And they give biological evidence and primarily microbiological. And we could talk about all of them. I'm not going to over 101 of them. I'm just going to kind of summarize some of them. But there's been some very recent research that is very exciting for a young earth creationist. DNA has been found, for example, in ancient fossils that are supposedly millions of years old. And particularly down here, number seven, dinosaur blood and soft tissue vessels and protein that's not fossilized. This is cutting edge science. A woman discovered this. What's her name? Schweitzer, I think, or I think that's her name. This is very controversial because dinosaurs are supposed to be 65 billion years old. And we know biologically that DNA is very, very unstable and at most could survive only thousands of years at most. Not certainly even millions of years. I read an article this week. Professor won an action diversity after he wrote it, proving young Earth based on fossils that he found still had soft tissue. Yes. And they fired him. And yeah. It was the first time creation, and then he cited that other lady who found. Yes. The same thing. Exactly. Yeah, this is cutting edge. So, what is their explanation for that? Ex- it's a major problem for them. Yeah, they haven't come up with an explanation. <laughs> yeah, it's a legal answer. <laughs> yeah. So that argues for there's something wrong with the dating of dinosaurs. Now, I did hear, and I wasn't sure whether he was serious or not, uh, kind of a local old earth guy, I asked, you know, I gave him that evidence and I said, well, how do you answer it? He says, well, I guess DNA lasts longer than what we thought. Yeah, same guy I debated. Oh. Yeah. Based on what evidence you have? Based on what? So there's evidence like that out there that keeps popping up. Okay. There's geological evidence. I gave you a lot of that when we were talking about the Genesis Flood because it deals with the same issue there with the geological column. Thick, tightly bent, and folded strata. Remember I talked to you about folding? 
gave you that evidence. Polystrate fossils, I gave you that evidence when we talked about the Genesis flood. So these are geological and paleontological evidence. More evidence, almost a complete lack of clearly recognizable soil layers. I didn't mention that. Between all these rock layers, there's no soil. In other words, and how do you account for plant life in all of these geological ages? Because there's no soil layers. It's all rock layers. It's, it's sedimentary rock laid down by water, but no soil layers. So we can add that to the Genesis flood. A recent and almost simultaneous origin of all mountain ranges around the world. This is orogeny. And some geologists hold to these more recent development of mountain ranges. And there's evidence for it. The amount of salt in the oceans indicate the oceans seem to not, they're not super saturated. And kind of a drawing that illustrates that. If you account for all the salt that enters and a little bit that escapes by spray and other ways, you would expect, in fact, all of the salt in the ocean would accumulate in a maximum of 62 million. That's not even close to the billion time frame. Now, that's a maximum. That's giving every advantage to the long-age viewpoint. Meaning it would be like at the bottom, it just becomes salty. No, it becomes salty. In other words, the, the, the saltiness of the water. So, in other words, the ocean would be... Like the Dead Sea. would be like the Dead Sea that is at its maximum. So, that argues for a relatively young Earth. And if there was a Genesis flood, all of that would be disrupted anyway because you'd have a lot of mixing and you'd have a lot of injecting of salt during the Genesis flood so you don't have a zero starting point. It's kind of like radiometric dating. You don't have a zero starting point. And there's other evidence as well. Radiometric dating, carbon-14. In fact, what was the phrase that Sarfati used? Or diamonds... Remember the little phrase, diamonds are a woman's what? A woman's best friend. Carbon-14 is a young earth creationist's best friend. Because carbon-14 has been found in diamonds, number 54 there. And because diamonds are supposedly some of the oldest rocks, if you want to call them rocks, on the planet... You would expect that there'd be no carbon-14 there because of the relatively short half-life of carbon-14. It's in the range of 5,700 or so years. So you would expect zero carbon-14 in diamonds, and yet that was another thing that was found by that ICR uh, research project, carbon-14 in diamonds. Also, in oil, oil is supposed to be at layers that is millions at least. I don't remember the dating of it, but it's below the Jurassic layer, so hundreds of millions of years. Carbon-14 is found in oil and coal and fossil wood. You would expect at those ages there to be none. So carbon-14 is a young creationist's best friend, you might say. So radiometric dating, and this is also giving the using the evolutionary assumptions as well. In other words, giving the benefit of them the, the doubt. Uh, but there's some other problems with carbon-14. Okay. Helium from alpha decay retained in zircons. Uh, those are neat little... Well, zircons are like crystals, and they, they leave little circles within them as a result of the radioactive decay, and those indicate a relatively young 
decay process. Lots of other evidence. I'm only up to 66 and our time is up. There's astronomical evidence, existence of short period comets, where do comets come from. In fact, comets should have all died out if they originated billions of years ago. Aging of spiral galaxies. So just astronomical, I'm going to conclude this thing. Some of the clocks that you can use, these are maximum. In other words, each of these are maximum ages. So you look for the lowest one because if that's the maximum, it eliminates the other ones. So we have dissolved nickel in oceans, a maximum of 9,000, dissolved silicon, 8,000. That's more in the biblical time frame. So all the others have to yield to these that are the low ones as maximums. And there's a whole list of these. I just gave you a few of them. Conclusion, old earth view, 10% has problems. And we have creationist answers. 20 billion years is not enough for evolution. Thirdly, evolution is not supported by science. Young earth view, supported by scripture. That's our starting point. And I believe it's supported by 90% of the scientific evidence. So why evolution? If God is creator, then all men stand accountable to him. We talked about that when we talked about creation versus evolution. What do we say about the flood? If the flood is historical, then all men will face God as judge. And man does not want to be accountable and wants to deny and to escape judgment. What can we say about billions of years? Well... If the earth is relatively young, then the day of judgment is not that far off. So, Henry Morris says, the most profound scientific statement ever written is what? You can tell me. Scripture. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That's the most profound scientific statement ever written. It's the last slide. Can you tell me why... Yes, uh, there's, there's no closing of the seventh day. Everybody, everything else is evening and the morning, mm-hmm. but there is no end of seventh day. I told you what I yeah. meant by that, but what do you think is more important than what I thought? <laughs> Not necessarily. I think it, in other words, 131 basically ends the creative days. In other words, that establishes the end of the creative work. And the seventh day is set as a pattern for the Sabbath, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not something that's making a comment in terms of what happens afterwards. So I think the creative works are done. The first law of thermodynamics is established after the sixth creative day. So it doesn't help us. Uh, The progressive creationist wants to use that little phrase that you're talking about, as evidence of rest and no, no more creative acts today that God is still resting. But I think God completed the creation, and now he is maintaining it. It's Colossians 1. He's maintaining Hebrews 1. That's maintaining. what I feel, that he hasn't, not that he hasn't finished creation, he hasn't finished his work. And, and the resting is... Well, he's completed. He'll be back to finish. He's completed his creative work, but he continues to maintain. So everything is now maintaining. Oh no, he's absolutely sovereign and will never stop. Okay. I have a question.
question on the term solar day. Um, how do you using the, that term before the sun was created? I mean, I understand 24 hours. And, and yeah, I think I think you missed that one. I mentioned that God created a time frame before he created the sun. In other words, there was already a day, day one, there's no sun. He's already created a time frame. It's on day four that now he's given us the ability to measure that time frame with the, the rotation of the earth around the sun. So the time frame was already there. In other words, he already created time in the beginning. In other words, that's the beginning of time. And along with the beginning of time, we have a time frame. And he set the sun and the moon in there. Yes, and he set them there for signs and seasons and whatever it says in the text there, so that now we can measure the time frame that God set up. Okay? You want to close first, Dennis? Sure. Lord God, we are just so humble to come before you, and we're just overwhelmed and thankful for you speaking through Ray and just all the work and effort that he's put into this and just how much love to share that with others. So God, I pray that as we go back into our normal lives that we would share this with other people, that we have gained knowledge and we wouldn't be afraid to, to share that. Uh, Jesus, most of all, we think coming here and paying the price for conquering death. And it's through you that I look Amen. And he came to planet Earth, not to Pluto. <laughs> Earth is a priority.